Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 50. You can follow along in the Pew Bible on page 473 or on the screens behind me. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there is none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 50, and let's uh, pray and seek the Lord's guidance as we look together at His Word. Gracious Father, thank You that You have not kept silent. We ask this morning that we would have ears to hear. Lord, help us see You and help us hear You in what you have to say to us at this time in this place from your word. We need the grace of your spirit for that to happen, and so we ask that you be with us, and we ask that you would, in fact, be glorified among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a a common but somewhat strange 
idea among people that when you do something wrong, that if nobody says anything, you've gotten away with it. Which then often leads to doing it again. I mean, you can think of the the child at the dinner table who uh, carefully selects the portions of their meal they're not interested in eating and then thinks they're being all secretive and sliding them off the table onto the floor as if you won't notice or won't find it later. And you can sit there and watch them out of the corner of their eye. And until you say something, they're going to keep doing it. It's the same way with so many of our sins. We think that because there haven't been any consequences yet, it must be no big deal. So why not have another go? But just because God hasn't said anything yet doesn't mean that he hasn't seen or doesn't care. And at some point, he will break his silence. And that's what we see in our psalm this morning. We've been spending the summer in the psalms, specifically from uh, selections from what's called book two of the psalms, chapters 42 to 72. And this morning we are in Psalm 50 together. And this psalm is framed in the language and imagery of a courtroom scene where God is the judge. He's the one behind the bench. The whole earth is invited to fill the galley and watch. Heaven and earth are deputized as law officers. And the defendants, those on the stand, are none other than God's covenant people, Israel, who have been carrying on in sin, thinking that because God hasn't said anything yet, they've gotten away with it, that they've evaded his notice. But now God is about to break the silence. And so in verses 1 through 6, court is called into session. Verse 1 introduces God with three titles, which draw our attention immediately to his power and his authority. That's what we need to know first and foremost about this judge. He is the mighty one, God, the Lord. This is Israel's covenant God, Yahweh, the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt and made a special Uh, deal with them that he would be their God and they would be their people. This is the only God who is uniquely powerful. And he has come to speak. Notice uh, how many times the language of speaking or silence comes up in this psalm. He's come to speak. He speaks and he summons all the earth from the rising of the sun, so from the east to its setting in the west, and everywhere in between. This judge has universal jurisdiction. He has authority over it all. And verse 2 rehearses the majesty of his courtroom. This is the highest court in all the land, if you will. Uh, In all creation, out of Zion, the perfection of his beauty, God shines forth. And then verse 3 describe his holiness and his power as he prepares to speak to his people. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire and around him a mighty tempest. And you think of that imagery when the judge walks into the courtroom preceded by a fire and followed by a hurricane. That's the picture. This judge means 
business. In verses 4 to 5, he deputizes heaven and earth. He sends them out to round up the accused and bring them to court. And then we see that those defendants, again, are his very own covenant people. Israel. That's who's on trial. God says, round them up that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Again, taking us back to Exodus 24 and the covenant at Mount Sinai. And then in verse 6, the heavens serve as a, as a kind of bailiff, as if to say, all rise, the honorable judge Yahweh is here. They, they declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Court is in session. So what is the trial about? In verses 7 to 21, God, the judge, also acts as the prosecution, the one bringing the charges against his people. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. And what are the charges? What, what does God bring against his people? We can summarize it with two counts of fraudulent worship in verses 7 to 15 and four counts of covenantal misconduct in verses 16 to 21. And we'll look first at the charge of fraudulent worship. Look at verse 8. Notice how the problem here is not Israel's failure to show up and offer sacrifices at God's temple. It's not that they're missing in worship or they've gone AWOL. He says in verse 8, your, your burnt offerings are continually before me. The problem is the heart with which they offer those sacrifices. They come with the wrong purposes and the wrong motives and therefore their worship is fraudulent. It's fake it's phony it looks good on the outside but it's not the real deal and so what's fraudulent about it the the first count comes from their false sense of ownership when they offer a sacrifice to god they do so as if they were giving god something he didn't already have you know here here god here's a bowl from our fold Here's, here's a goat from, from our household. How generous are we to give God something like that? That's kind of the attitude, the posture they come with. They, they offer sacrifices to God like he's a, a sad toddler sitting in the middle of the room with no toys. And how generous of it uh, is it for them to share with him? But God rebukes them in verses 9 to 11. He is the rightful owner of every creature. There isn't a goat in your fold or a bull in your stall that doesn't already belong to God. There isn't a dime in our bank account or a stock in our portfolio or anything like that that doesn't already belong to God. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So there's this false sense of ownership. But the second count, 
a fraudulent worship, comes from a, a backward sense of dependence. So who is serving whom here? They approach worship as though God is somehow dependent on them. Like a needy boyfriend, if Israel doesn't call every day, God's going to feel insecure. Or an ailing parent, if they don't cook a meal every day, if they don't show up at the temple with their offering, God's going to go hungry. Again, God rebukes them in verses 12 to 13. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? I mean, not only have they misunderstood God's nature, as though the sacrifices that they offered were actually food for him. That was the idea in a lot of paganistic uh, religions in the ancient world. But that's not how the true God works. But, but not only do they misunderstand his nature, worse, they approach their worship as though they were doing God a favor. As though they were doing God a favor. As though he needed them. Rather than remembering that they are the ones who are dependent on him. And coming to him with gratitude and thanksgiving. Instead of this kind of smugness and pride. And so the first charge is fraudulent worship. Their worship of God is fake. The second is covenantal misconduct. And we see that in verses 16 to 21. And here, what we see is a gap between what God's people confess with their lips and what they do with their lives. So verse 16, they recite God's statutes. They take his covenant on their lips. They are professing followers of God. They agree with the statement of faith. They reaffirm their covenantal commitments to him. But what right do they have to do so, God asks, when their lives say something completely different? So he charges them with four counts of covenantal misconduct, of, of breaking their deal with God. The first is their rejection of God's word in verse 17. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Simply put, they do not like what scripture has to say about their lives and how God calls them to live. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, they, they question the wisdom and goodness of God, thinking that they know better, and so they hate God's instruction. They just they don't like what it says, so they ignore it, and they do what they want instead. The second count comes from their celebration of sin in verse 18. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. And, and this one flows naturally out of the first. That once you ignore God's word and get rid of it, uh, the next step is often to make much of what God actually condemns. To celebrate sin as though it were a good. To, to look at it and say, that's, that's living. God doesn't know what he's talking about. The third count comes from their evil speech in verse 19. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. And instead of honoring God with life-giving words, they despise God with deadly words, saturated with deception and filth. 
And finally, the fourth count comes from their slanderous behavior in verse 20. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Instead of loving their own, they eat their own. They bear false witness against their own family for the sake of selfish gain. I mean, family is like the strongest bond you can think of, right? They're willing to sacrifice that for selfish gain. To, to not just get rid of it, but to bear false witness against their own flesh. God's covenant people are in breach of contract. They are walking in unrepentant sin, and they think that they can get away with it. Because up to this point, God hasn't said anything. These things you have done, and I have been silent. But just because God hasn't said anything yet, doesn't mean that he doesn't see or that he won't judge our sin. And what's underneath all of this? Like, where does all of this come from? This is a pretty ugly picture. Where does their fraudulent worship or covenantal misconduct ultimately come from? Well, God tells us, he identifies the root in the second half of verse 21. These things I, I, you have done and I have been silent. Well, why have you done them? You thought that I was one like yourself. Or another possible translation of that. You thought that the I am was altogether like you. The I am there being God's covenant name from where we get Yahweh, taking you back to Exodus chapter 3. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So the essence of Israel's problem was that they overlooked or underestimated the holiness of God. They thought God was just like them. Sin's not that big a deal to us. Must not be that big a deal to him. You know, we really help people out when we share with them. I'll bet God's really helped out when we give to him as well. They, like so many people today, suffered from a small view of God. But God is not just like us. He is holy. He is set apart, set off from everything else. Uh, Some of you have uh, a cabinet in your house full of dishes that you almost never use, right? You only get them out on special occasions, maybe a holiday or a nice dinner, but otherwise they're just set apart. And and that's an earthly kind of holiness. Those dishes are set apart for very specific uses. There's something special to them. They have a special value for special purposes or, or sometimes... We speak of Sunday for the church or Saturday for the synagogue as being holy. It's unlike any other day in the week. It's set apart for worship. Well, God is holy. He is holy on an infinitely bigger plane. He is set apart. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God is holy? What is it that the Israelites have failed to grasp or that we so often fail to grasp? 
Well, we could say a lot of things about the holiness of God, but I think we can summarize a, a biblical picture of God's holiness by saying that he is set apart in three ways. First, God is holy with respect to his unique transcendence. Now, transcendent is a big word that we don't use in most com- daily conversation. Um, but here, all it simply means is that God is above his creation and unlike his creation. He is above it. He's not part of his creation. He is creator, not creature. And he is unlike it. He's different in quality. Uh, For instance, creation exists in time, but God is eternal. He's timeless. Or creation is limited in scope. It's finite. Whereas God is unlimited. He is infinite. He has no boundary. The universe can't contain him. So if you think about it, it's, it's like the difference between a portrait of a person and the artist who's painting that portrait. Now, you might see some similarities, right? Like both of them have eyes or ears or mouths or whatever. But the person making the painting is above and unlike the person in the painting. He's outside the canvas, for instance, right? Uh, He has eyes that can actually see and a mouth that can actually speak. He's on a completely different plane of existence. And so God is above and unlike his creation. Theologian J.I. Packer helps us understand this aspect of God's holiness. He says that holy is the word that the Bible uses to express all that's distinctive and transcendent about the revealed nature and character of of the Creator, all that brings home to us the infinite distance and difference that there is between Him and ourselves. Holiness in this sense means, quite comprehensively, the Godness of God. So it's everything about Him which sets Him apart from man, His unique transcendence. And you see that celebrated throughout Scripture. You see it uh, and when the heavenly creatures around his throne praise God, and like Isaiah 6 or Revelation 4, verse 8, as day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is unlike his creation. He has no beginning, no end. He is holy. And so that's the first element. He's above us and unlike us. Second, God is holy with respect to his supreme majesty. That is to say that he is over and bigger than his creation. Just as he is above his creation in terms of who he is, he is over his creation in terms of authority. And he's bigger than his creation in terms of value. He is supremely majestic. Again, you can think of the artist illustration to kind of help wrap our heads around uh, this idea. At the end of every school year, um, our kids come home with a grocery sack full of their art that they have made. Uh, And some of our children uh, can be rather nostalgic and they want to keep all of that artwork and hide it in their closet or something like that. Now, if one of our children would decide that, you know what, I want to throw this away, 
would they have the authority to do that? Or, I mean, they're the ones who made it. You know, what is it, why is it that, that this artwork came home in that bag? What if I like, what if my kid liked that other painting on the wall better? Why can't I take that one home? Well, you didn't make that one. We have authority over what we make. And because they made it, they have authority to, to display it or get rid of it. Um, and, and, and so God has authority over us because he is the creator. He's the one who made us. He he made everything, he owns everything, therefore he alone has the right to rule everything. In a similar way, should we ever get to the point where our child's room is filling up with artwork and either they or their artwork has to go, one or the other, it's an obvious decision which we would get rid of. Because, you know, we don't often think of it this way, but the artist, as, you know, as a person, no less, has infinitely more value than the artwork that they create. In the same way as creator and king, God is infinitely more valuable than anything he has made. And therefore, there's nothing that he has made that can satisfy his people more than the maker himself. He is supreme. He is majestic. He rules and he has value above all. And that's what Israel recognized and responded to when God delivered them from Pharaoh. Again, back in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God is holy with respect to his supreme majesty. He is our king, and he alone is worthy of our worship and ultimate satisfaction. And so third... God is holy with respect to his moral perfection. So his unique transcendence, he is uh, above us and unlike us. His supreme majesty, he's over us and bigger than us. And now his moral perfection. He is the source and the standard for all that is good and true and just and loving. So if you, in terms of his moral perfection, you can think of God like the sun, right? As the sun is the source of all light in our galaxy, so God is the source of all goodness and justice. He's the one who defines what is good. But he's also the standard. So we don't just see light, what light is when we look at the sun. We also see everything else in the light that that sun provides. And so... It's the same with God's moral perfection. We know what is good and just and true by definition when we look at the sun, but we can also measure what is good and just and true by looking at everything in light of God's goodness, justice, and truth. He is the only sure and perfect source and standard of what is right. 1 John 5.1 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And in that moral perfection, God is too pure and holy to even look upon sin. Habakkuk 1.13 acknowledges that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Or, nor can he allow it into his presence. Psalm 5 verse 4 says, 
For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. He can't allow it into his presence. If he did, his holiness would destroy all that's unholy. Just like any object that tries to approach the sun, it would be annihilated by its radiance and heat. That's why God says to Moses in Exodus 33, that man shall not see me and live. He's too holy. That's why when Isaiah has his vision in in chapter 6 and he finds himself in God's courtroom and he realizes what he's seeing, the, the angels worshiping him, holy, 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 Isaiah's only logical response is to say, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is very sure this is the end of the line. He's done. Another way of putting this is to say that God, in his holy moral perfection, must respond to sin. He must respond to it with judgment. Sin or disobedience to God, it robs God of his glory. It rejects his rightful rule over creation. It'd be like trying to replace the sun with a 50-watt flashlight and then tell everybody, this is what light truly is. I mean, talk about insulting to the sun, right? Or worse, living as though light is dark and dark is light. Completely rejecting God's perfect standard and turning it on its head. Sin is an assault on God's holiness. And God in his holiness must respond with judgment. He is too pure to let sin into his presence, and he is too good to allow it to go unpunished. Which is why he shows up in Psalm 50 to break his silence and bring Israel to account. God is holy with respect to his moral perfection. He's holy in every way. He's altogether above us, Unlike us, over us, in authority, bigger than us, in value, pure, perfect, and radiant in every way. He is God, and we are not. And when we miss that, when we overlook or underestimate His holiness, that's when we begin to think that He's just like us. Not transcendent or unique, not supreme or majestic, not morally perfect. Therefore, not interested in answering sin. And so our worship becomes fraudulent. As though God were somehow dependent on us or our conduct becomes sinful. As though we can just ignore God's word or God's ways. If you put it in modern sociological terms... We buy into the religious attitude of of what's been identified as moralistic, therapeutic deism. We've we've talked about that before, uh, but it's essentially, a number of researchers did a, a study a few years back on what do people actually believe? Not what do they say they believe, but how they live, what does it actually say? Uh, And what they found was that the dominant functional religion of young people in America including Christian young people, 
was what they described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Uh, One author gives a nice summary of it. He says, a moralistic output says that if I live a moral life, do good things, and try not to do bad things, God will reward me and send me to a better place when I die. For most people, a good life involves not killing other people or robbing old ladies and babies. So the bar is not real high. A therapeutic, a therapeutic orientation to God says his primary reason for existing is to make me happy and peaceful. So God is a form of therapy, of self-help. He exists for me. Deism says that God exists, but he's distant and mostly uninvolved. Or we could say conveniently uninvolved. He won't interrupt my plans or get in my business. He doesn't tell me what to do. In short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call to take care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process. And, and you think about that. What's so interesting about that God? Wow, he's just like me. He's just like us. We've made him in our own image. He's no longer above us and unlike us. He's become very much like us and honestly a bit below us. He no longer reigns with authority. We reign over him telling him what he needs to do to make our lives better. He's no longer bigger than us. In fact, he's become rather unimpressive. He's lucky to even be able to hang around us. And his moral perfection has become, at best, a moralistic ideal to shoot for. And at the end of the day, not that big a deal. Because God's... God's down with a little bit of sin, right? He wants us to be happy. Let's not go overboard. Which, you know, you put it all together, it makes it hard for us to understand how could he stand in judgment over anyone? And so it's no surprise that one of the first things to go when we begin to think of God as altogether like us is his wrath, his holy anger against sin. We don't think that's very nice. And, and God's nice and he wants us to be nice. Wrath's not nice. So how dare God weigh in in judgment over someone? And all of a sudden, we've turned Psalm 50 on its head. It's no longer humans in the defendant's seat. It's God. And we're on the bench demanding that he make an account for his moral ways, for his laws, for his right to rule, for his holiness, his word, and we'll decide the verdict of whether or not he's guilty or innocent. Truth be told, this is the God that many of us want. But it's not the God that we need. And it's not God as he has revealed himself to us. We've lost sight of his holiness. But when God the judge speaks, when he breaks his silence and reveals his holiness, when his indictment thunders from his lips, 
it resonates in our souls. We are guilty. We know it. We know it. We have fallen desperately short of his holiness. We have approached a lion as though it were a newborn baby kitten. And so God warns in verse 22, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. God is holy. He's not to be trifled with. And so where does this psalm leave us? Right where we need to be. Ready to receive and rely on the gospel of Jesus and live in humble dependence and joyful gratitude before our holy God and King. Without the holiness of God, All that's really left of Christianity is the liberal Protestantism of the early 20th century. It's what Richard Niebuhr described as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's not Christianity. But when we recognize God's holiness, it's only then that we truly begin to understand his love and his grace. What it cost him to shed his love on us. How truly satisfying he is and what it looks like to follow him as his redeemed people. Joshua Harris writes, Most people assume that it's God's job to love them. He needs us. He pines for us. And if we pay him any attention, go to church, do a good deed, recycle, maybe meditate while listening to soothing music, then we've done him a really big favor. The love of God is wonderful news only when we understand his transcendence, when we tremble at his holiness, when we are awed by his perfection and power. God's love is perceived as amazing only when we realize that the one thing we truly deserve from Him is righteous wrath and eternal punishment for our disobedience and disloyalty. Seeing God for who He is leaves us asking with the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of Him and the Son of Man that you care for Him? I mean, sometimes we think that that for God to be merciful, he has to suspend his holiness. He has to set aside justice. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because God's holiness, it's not just one of these single attributes that's unrelated to everything else. It also describes every other attribute of God. Jerry Bridges explains it. God's power is is holy power. His mercy is holy mercy. His wisdom is holy wisdom, to which we could add his purposes are holy purposes. His love is holy love. Everything about God is perfect, holy, unique, above us, beyond us. In contrast, where our wisdom and our power are limited, right? They're limited by our humanity and by our sin. 
our love and our mercy are often tainted with selfish motives. But God is unmatched in his knowledge. He's unparalleled in power. He's perfect in mercy and flawless in his love. Which means that God's holiness and his mercy are not at odds with each other. Rather, God's holiness is displayed not only in his judgment against sin, but in his mercy toward sinners. And there's only one way that that's possible. Only one way. And that is the cross of Christ. Where God dealt justly with sin and mercifully with sinners at the same time where sin was dealt with in full because Jesus took the full weight of God's holy anger onto himself in our place, and where sinners can therefore be forgiven because their debt has been paid in full. We need only to take hold of Christ through faith. And, and so, what's our proper response to this psalm? According to this psalm, well, it's repentance from a small view of God, thinking he's not just like us. And it's gratitude for how big God really is. That's what he tells us in verses 14 to 15. You know, stop worshiping as though you were doing God a favor and instead approach him with thanksgiving and dependence. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. Depend on me and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Notice how the direction gets made right. We turn it upside down, putting ourselves above God. But when we come to him with humility and gratitude, all of a sudden now the glory is going in the right direction. We glorify him. He says it again in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice. And, and again, to do that, to recognize how sinful we are and how merciful he is. And so we, we offer thanksgiving as his sacrifice. That's the one who glorifies God. To the one who orders his way rightly. Putting God first. I will show the salvation of God. When we truly grasp the grace of the gospel, that, that we who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ, when we truly grasp the grace of the gospel, how can we approach God with anything other than gratitude? There's no boasting. There's no entitlement. Here's my list of demands. You know, when, when you receive a birthday gift, you write a thank you note. How much more when we receive the gift of eternal life? If you've ever been let out of a speeding ticket, you say thank you to the officer. How much more when we're freed from the eternal punishment of hell? Gratitude 
It's the culture of Christianity. It's, it's, it's the air we breathe when we understand who God is, what he's done, and how he has acted in mercy to love us. When we see God in his holiness, we're able to see our sin in its bitterness and therefore to taste Christ in his sweetness. So that all of our worship, the, the songs that we sing, the, the gifts that we offer, the prayers we pray, the, the deeds we perform, everything come, becomes an act of thanksgiving to our holy and merciful God. And so may our hearts be both afflicted and comforted by the holiness of God. May we see him for who he is and give him the worship he deserves through Christ our Savior as our holy king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in confession that we have fallen short. We have assumed that you were like us and we have lived as though that were true. And therefore, we have not treated you the way you deserve to be treated in so many ways. And yet, Lord, we praise you for your mercy a mercy you have demonstrated above all things through the cross of Christ, through his death, through his resurrection. And so, Lord, may we in humility come before you, seeking your forgiveness, Lord, but resting in that forgiveness as well, relying on your grace, not just as a single event, to begin a relationship, but as our daily bread, walking with you every day by your grace. Because you are holy. You are beautiful. You are majestic. And we want to worship you as you deserve. And so we need your help. And we praise you for the help you've given us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.